This month, we're talking about what it means to thrive in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And ask Keith to come over and join me kind of spontaneously because he's been up here at both services this morning leading worship, praising Jesus. But this week, he also buried his mother and uh, got a faith with the Lord that just wants to be here and worship Jesus while his heart is hurting. Would you just encourage my brother right now? Thank you. Bless you, brother. I just, you know, it's, it has been a tough week, but you know, when you have the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ and yeah. knowing where your loved ones are, man, it's just, it's just so much better, so much better. I can't imagine yeah. going through this without our faith. I just want to say uh, to my church family, thank you so much for your prayers for this, you know, month. We've, uh, we've had quite a journey, but I mean, without your prayers, I mean, I felt the presence of God each and every day, always yeah. on, on step, on the way, but, and I encourage you today. Draw close to him and thrive. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. And, you know, that's, that's what, we're, what we're wanting as, as followers of Christ is to have a relationship with Jesus that never grows old where we thrive and we're, we're, we're close to him and we're maturing. Friday, uh, Brother Jamie Burdett and I drove over to Pelzer. Tom Powell, uh, his father, passed away Tuesday, so the funeral was Friday. And, and I, I was, you know, blessed as I listened to Tom give a loving eulogy about his dad. But what really touched me was three of the adult grandkids got up and talked about their, their, their grandfather. And there were two themes in everything they said. One was, his, was family and how much he loved them. They knew he loved them. And the other was his faith, his relationship with Christ, that, man, it, it never wavered, and he had such an impact on them. They told about when they were little, he and his wife, their grandmother, would take them to the beach every summer. And when they were there, anytime it was a Sunday, they would always get up and go to church. They knew they were going to church if they were on vacation. Uh, and it was Sunday, and I've told you all before, when you go on vacation, worship Jesus on Sunday, go to church somewhere, and when you have guests come to visit you, go to church, invite them to come with you. If they don't come, that's fine. They can stay, but you go to church. Set an example for them, and that's what these grandkids were talking about. Their grandparents, especially their grandfather, always did. He set that kind of example. They told about when they would spend the weekend or a night at the house with their grandparents. They'd always have a time of prayer, and he would ask them to pray, and he taught them how to pray. And uh, Tom was talking about how even in the latter years, his dad was uh, 83 years old. He kept growing because he was in a little bitty church. It was a dying church. They got a new pastor, made some changes, changed some things about worship. You know how that goes. And that wasn't always easy or popular. And at first his dad didn't like it, but then he saw new people started coming to the church. People from the community, people started being saved and growing spiritually. And, and his dad changed his thinking and got excited about it because he saw what God was doing. And it's always encouraging when you see someone grow and their appreciation of what God is doing in this world through his church, no matter their particular age. But I pulled out my iPhone during the funeral and I jotted down a note in the note app on here because one of the grandkids talking about their grandfather said, listen to this, said he lived every day of his life preparing for Tuesday. He lived every day of his life preparing for the day he would die and see Jesus face to face. And so I want to ask you the question, what do you have to do so that your faith never grows tired, never grows old? What do you have to do to continue prospering spiritually, to, to thrive in your walk with Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. And last Sunday, we said it's really important that you maintain an intimate and strong connection with Jesus Christ. You never get over being saved. You never get over the fact that he called you into a relationship with himself to serve him, and you, you develop that relationship. You never move past it. Today, I want to 
focus on the importance of God's Word, the Bible, and the role that it plays in our lives spiritually if we're going to thrive as a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the truth I want you to take away today. Okay, I'm just going to give it to you up front. Here's the truth I want you to, to get down. And there's a place in your notes for you to jot this down, fill in some blanks. Here's the truth. The right kind of Bible study. Now, I said that correctly, intentionally. I didn't. It's, it's not just Bible study. It's not just Bible reading, Bible teaching. It's the right kind of Bible reading, the right kind of Bible study, the right kind of Bible teaching transforms us, changes us. And as it changes us, we become more loving and more godly. And you don't have God's kind of love without godliness, and you don't have God's definition of true godliness without his kind of love. You have to have them together. You can't just say, I'm going to grow in this one and not that. They come together. They happen simultaneously. And when you approach the Word of God the right way and you're reading, you're studying, teaching, etc., you will change, you will grow, you will be transformed, become more Christ-like because you will become more loving and more godly as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter whether you've been saved two years or 60 years. It doesn't matter if you're 17 or 77 that is to still be happening in your life and there is to never be a time when you just settle, when you stop growing, stop changing, stop becoming more loving, stop becoming more godly until you see Jesus Christ and he gives you that new resurrected body and then you're complete in your love and complete in your godliness. Between now and then, you're to be growing in it. And when you approach the word of God the right way, that will happen in your life. Now here's the thing. If that's not happening in your life, you're not handling the Word of God correctly. If you're not becoming more loving and more godly, more Christ-like, it means either you're not reading the Bible very much. Some of you, the, the last time you picked up the Bible before this morning was the last time you went to church or Sunday school. You don't read it very often. You don't study it. Others of you, you have the Bible, you read it all the time, but that's not happening in your life. You're not becoming more godly. You're not becoming more loving because you're approaching Bible reading and Bible study the wrong way. And yes, there is a wrong way. If you're reading Scripture, that's not happening in your life, something's wrong. There's a problem you need to address. Now, all of us who've been in church a long time understand the Bible. God's Word is our spiritual food. The Bible says we're supposed to hunger and thirst for it like meat and milk. It feeds us. Some of you have Scripture and it's not feeding you. Nothing's happening in your life. I invite you to open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1 because in this chapter, Paul talks about the right way and the wrong way to approach Scripture and the difference that those approaches make in your life spiritually. Now, the background for this, and you'll remember from last Sunday, is that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in the last few years of his life. It's the mid-60s A.D., about 30 years after Jesus. Timothy had been Paul's co-worker in planting churches and evangelism for about two decades. And one of the churches that the Apostle Paul planted as a missionary was on his second missionary journey, as told in the book of Acts. It was in the city of Ephesus. In today would be Turkey, in the city of Ephesus. And the church, when he wrote this letter, was about 20 years old, but it was having some serious issues. And so Paul leaves Timothy as the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he says, Timothy, I want you to use my apostolic authority to fix those things that are wrong 
in this church. Now, here's what was wrong. Here's the situation that Timothy and Paul were dealing with in the church at Ephesus. There were people in that church, teachers in that church. They had, the, they had Scripture, and they were teaching. But they were teaching the wrong way. They were teaching the wrong stuff, even though they were saying it's from Scripture. And it was damaging. It was hurting the spiritual lives, the spiritual development of the disciples in that church. And that's why I say again, there is both a right way and a wrong way to handle the Word of God. And you can read the Word of God, but if you approach it the wrong way, with the wrong attitude, with the wrong, with the wrong purpose, studying it the wrong way, you're not going to be transformed the way God wants you to be transformed. And, and, and these believers in this church were struggling spiritually because of the way the Word of God was being handled in that local church. And so look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We'll start with those two verses, okay? Verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. You stay there in the city of Ephesus at that church. Why? Verse 3, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than feathering the administration of God which is by faith. Now, in verse 3, when he talks about strange doctrines, your Bible may translate that as different doctrine, different teaching, false teaching, other doctrine, other teaching. And the focus in the Greek language of the New Testament is not on the false teachings of other world religions. The focus in that Greek word is on teaching that was happening in that local church by people who were part of that church. Teaching things that they claimed were Christian but really were not. See, just because someone says this is a Christian whatever doesn't mean that it really is. You can put the title on anything. And that's what they were doing. And it was causing some serious problems in the church. It was teaching from within. And years before that, the Apostle Paul had warned the leaders of that church this would happen. In the book of Acts in chapter 20, the last time Paul was at that church before he was arrested by the Romans who eventually executed him as a follower of Christ, Paul warned the leaders in Acts chapter 20, and I want you to listen to what he said to them in verses 29 and 30. He said, I know that after my departure, when I'm gone from you, when I'm no longer on the scene, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. People from within the church, will they'll, they'll, they'll rise up speaking perverse things untrue things, unbiblical things, corrupt, sinful things, perverse things to draw away the disciples after them, to lead them astray, away from the truth of God, away from godliness and Christ-likeness. And so Paul in verse 3 says, Timothy, I left you in Ephesus so that you will instruct these who are teaching those things to stop. And the word translated instruct is a strong word. It has a a military overtone to it. It means to give an order, to command, to give direction. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, use my apostolic authority and you command, you put a stop to this wrong teaching that is spiritually damaging the people in the church in the city of Ephesus. 
Now, our modern culture is such that if anybody says anything like I just said, they think, man, you're crazy. You're a fanatic. But God says doctrine matters. Theology matters. Truth matters. And truth is not just whatever you want to be true. Something's either true or it's not. Something's either real or it's not. And God in this chapter says to Timothy, put a stop to it because it's important. It's doing great spiritual damage. In fact, if you want to know how serious God had the Apostle Paul take this, at the end of chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, two men named Hymenaeus and Alexander were among those who were teaching false things in that church and hurting people spiritually. In verse 20, Paul had them excommunicated from the church. Now that's pretty serious stuff. That not only are you to stop, but you got to leave. You're not going to teach that here. And we're excommunicating you from the church. That's, that's tough. That's strong, isn't it? And it, that indicates how serious this issue is, that, that doctrine and theology and truth matter. What you are taught, what you believe matters. Because we, we often say in our culture today, you can believe whatever you want as long as you're genuine. Really? Why is it we only say that about things connected to the Bible? Why is it we only say that about morality? We would never say that about any other field of life. But God says there are things that are true and there are things that are not true. There are things that, have got, that are of God and there are things that, that are not of God. In 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the book of Titus, words that are translated in our English Bibles like teach, teaching, teachers, etc., doctrine. Is, those, those words are used 32 times in these three books of the New Testament alone because it matters. What we believe, what you are taught, how you study matters. Now, what was the false teaching that was taking place in Ephesus? Well, look in chapter 1 at verse 4. We get some insight into it. He said, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. Rather than, this is what you're supposed to be paying attention to, things that further the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, bear with me. Next Sunday morning, we're going to look very closely at this false teaching and the damage that it was doing. In fact, next Sunday morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about homosexuality because it's mentioned in verse 10. And then in August, the first two or three Sundays, I'm going to do a series of sermons on that issue. Now, many of you know what the Bible says about it, but that's, that's only part of it. We need to talk honestly about some of the other issues that are involved, the struggles that people who struggle with attraction to the same sex deal with. We're going to talk about some important questions so you know how to have an informed conversation so that you're, you're beyond just the surface of what the Bible says. And this is not going to be a sermon series where I'm just, you know, condemning and shouting. We're going to do some teaching, and I want you to be learning. I want you to know how to converse with people. I want you to know how to think biblically and Christian. So I hope you'll be here and take some notes and learn with us and allow God to teach you and do a work in your life. But today, I don't want to focus on what the false teaching was. We'll look at that next Sunday. What I want to focus on today 
is what he tells us in this chapter about the wrong kind of Bible reading, the wrong kind of Bible study, the wrong kind of teaching or preaching, and the right kind of Bible study, the right way to read the Bible, the right way, the correct way to teach and to preach, and why those are important. Then we'll get into the false teaching next Sunday. But let's look at what he says about the issues of the right and wrong ways. Because he does say there's a right way and there's a wrong way. Now, he, he, he tells us in verse 4, here's the problem with the wrong approach. You're paying attention to these myths and endless genealogies. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Which give rise to mere speculation rather than the furtherance of the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, that word administration, the administration of God, your Bible may translate it um, differently than, than the New American Standard that I'm reading from. It may call it God's work or translate it as God's plan. King James says godly edifying. Because the word translated administration there comes from a, a compound of two Greek words. One means to build and the other is a house. So in the early Greek it meant to build a house, to build a structure. And in time it came to be used for someone who managed the household affairs of a wealthy person. We talk about the word steward. It's the word for steward or stewardship. So you're managing the possessions of someone else and do it in such a way as to build up their household, to build up their assets, to take care of and do well with what belongs to someone else. And what the New Testament teaches is that as followers of Jesus Christ, you and I have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus We have been entrusted with the ministry, as Paul says in the book of Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel, reconciliation to God, means that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people turn from their sin, repent of their sin, and then turn to Jesus by placing their faith in Jesus. Salvation is turning from and turning to. Being forgiven and transformed is I turn from, I repent of, and ask forgiveness for, and I turn to and give my life to Christ and live godly out of gratitude. There's a change that takes place. It's like in the army, you're marching one direction, and the sergeant says to the rear, march, and they turn and go the other direction. That's salvation. That's conversion. The gospel is the good news that when you turn from your sin and the consequences of that sin to Christ Jesus through faith, You're changed. You're transformed. God says you and I, as disciples of Jesus, have been entrusted with that gospel, been entrusted with that ministry. And we are to carry it out, to manage it, to steward it, if you will, in such a way that we build the household of God, that we build the kingdom of God, the church of God, through people coming to true repentance and faith in Christ. And there is no faith in Christ apart from turning away from sin. You can't be saved from something if you don't acknowledge that you need to be saved. You can't be forgiven unless you're willing to acknowledge there is sin that you are guilty of having committed. They go together like a glove in a hand. It's two parts of the same experience. If you We've been entrusted with that. And so we are to to build the church of God, the kingdom of God, to carry out the work of God rather than creating division and speculation about things that are not true that hinder people from coming to a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just about getting people into a church or into a denomination or into some kind of spiritual experience. It's about people coming to the true family, the true household 
of God. And it's by faith. Now he makes it even clearer in verse 5, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want to show you the danger of doing it the wrong way, of not building the work of God, building the kingdom of God through the gospel, through faith. He said in verse 6 of chapter 1 that it causes some people to go astray from the truth of Scripture, from the truth of the gospel, to go astray. In verse 19, those two men who had been excommunicated from the church because they were approaching the Word of God wrong and teaching falsehood, the Bible says that they were shipwrecked. So now get this picture. They were shipwrecked. They were in the church. They had the Word of God. They were teaching what they called Christian teaching, but it really wasn't Christian teaching even though they gave it that name. And the Bible says they were spiritually, in terms of the relationship with God, they were shipwrecked. It's like they had been a ship in the ocean and crashed on the rocks. So just because you have a Bible, just because you are religious, just because you claim to be Christian, just because you are in church does not mean that spiritually you are thriving. That, that you are doing it God's way. Just because you call it Christian does not make it Christian. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He said, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, there's that word again, strange, different, other than, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine of, conforming to godliness. Now, you remember a moment ago I said that when you approach Bible study and Bible teaching the right way, it results in our growth, our transformation, and that we become more loving and we also become more godly. That's what he's saying here, that true biblical doctrine produces godliness. What is godliness? It's obeying God. It's obeying what God says about right and wrong. It's becoming more like Christ. And when we are ungodly, we're disobeying God. We're going the other direction. We're doing whatever we want to do rather than what God says. And so the Bible tells us that true teaching, sound doctrine, the right approach to Bible study will result in you becoming more like Christ, you becoming more godly, not less godly. Now, I mentioned Next week I'm going to talk a little bit about homosexuality and in August I'm going to talk about it even more. But let me lay a little groundwork for you. The Bible clearly, and I know there's struggles with it, but the Bible very clearly says that it's, it's, it's a sin. Now that doesn't make it easy and it doesn't make it popular. And we'll talk about some of those issues and the struggles people have. But there's no way of getting around what the Bible says about the issue. And so if you're... You listen on TV and some of the the liberal groups who who are Christians and have the Bible and they use the Bible to justify the behavior. Here's the problem. What they are teaching in the name of Christianity does not promote godliness. It's promoting ungodly behavior. It's promoting behavior that God says is not right. And so God says the right approach to Scripture, the right approach to Bible reading and Bible teaching will call people to love and to godliness. Now let me show you that even more clearly. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. He said, the goal of our instruction, this is the outcome. This is what we're looking for when we teach. So as a preacher, as a Sunday school teacher, small group leader, this is the goal. This is the outcome you want to see. 
And by the way, when you have your quiet time, your personal Bible study, this is the outcome that needs to happen in your life. And if when you read the Scripture, this is not happening in your life, then you're not approaching it the right way. There's something wrong. He said, here's the goal of our instruction, our Bible reading, etc. It's love. Now, he doesn't stop there. Because some will say, hey, love, you accept everyone, you accept everything. But he doesn't stop there. He said, love that comes what? From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word love here is the word agape for God's kind of love. It's not just a sentiment, but it shows up in the way you deal with people and your behavior and so on. Your choices. But he says, agape, God's kind of love does not just come from your own human intuition, your own nature. He says it, it's love from, it's the Greek word ek, out of. It grows out of, it comes from out of. A pure heart. A pure heart. We'll talk about those two words. The Greek word pure in the New Testament means clean, clear. It's the word that is used for not being corrupted by sin, not being tainted or stained by sin. It's the word for clean, without sin. So it's love that grows out of the fact that my heart is godly. That's one of the reasons I said earlier, you can't separate love and godliness if you're going to have Christian love and Christian godliness. You can have a false kind of love. You can have a false kind of godliness, and I'll talk about that in a second. But if you're going to have biblical God's kind of love and God's kind of godliness, they go together. And it comes out of a a pure, clean Heart, and the word heart means more than it does in our English language. When we think of the word heart, we think about sentiment, emotions, feelings, right? And the New Testament Greek word for heart means that, but it means more. It also means what we mean when we use the word mind. So in in the Greek context, the word heart also meant your mind, your your thinking, your reasoning, your rationality, your decision-making, your will. And so God says... When you are approaching Scripture the right way, you're having your quiet time, you're reading Scripture, you're in teaching and all of that, what's going to happen if you're doing it the right way is God is going to take His Word and He's going to speak to you on the inside about you, about your heart. In English, we would say your heart and your mind. And so when you're approaching God's Word right, you're not just focused on what everyone else is doing wrong. You're not just focused on the gay issue or any other issue. You're also focused on yourself. And God says, I want your heart, your mind, your thinking, your rationale, your decision-making, your emotions, your sentiment, your feeling. I want all of it to be pure. So if in your mind you're selfish, you see, there's a form of godliness that is just on the outside, right? God here is dealing with the inside. Because when you, when you first become a follower of Jesus Christ, what God begins to clean up is the outer stuff. We work on outer godliness. So we don't get drunk. We don't sleep around. We don't steal. We don't lie. Behavioral things, outer godliness, 
But once you've been a Christian for a little while and God has cleaned up that outer godliness, your behavior, it's the inner you that then has to be worked on to continue growing. It's the reason Jesus said it's not what you eat or drink that defiles the man, but it's what comes out of you. It's what's on the inside. So the longer you are a follower of Christ, the more the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and begins working on our attitudes and our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings. So if I'm kind of a, a selfish guy, and I may not have cleaned that up yet. When I'm approaching Scripture the right way, God's going to confront me about that. And I'm going to, through a process, be changed, transformed, and become less selfish because I'm becoming more like Christ. And by the way, the less selfish I become, guess what? Then the better I am at loving people. Love from a pure heart. Do you get it? If on the inside I'm harboring resentment and anger, when I approach God's word the right way, God's going to talk to me about that bitterness. God's going to talk to me about those hurt feelings. God's going to talk to me about all of that anger. And he's going to be refining me and getting that stuff out of me and growing me. And I'm going to be transformed and changed and become more like Christ and not as bitter and all of that stuff. And when that happens, guess what? And the inside becomes more holy, then the outside's more holy, and I'm able to love more way, more like Christ wants me to love. You see, biblical love, is joined with biblical holiness. You don't have biblical love without biblical godliness. And you don't really have biblical godliness if you don't have biblical love. They go together. That's why there are people who they follow all the rules. But, man, they treat people like jerks. And so by the rules, outwardly, they look godly. But the truth is they're not godly because they're not loving. True godliness and true love go together. Do you get that? When you approach the Word of God right in your private Bible reading and Bible study, your quiet time, and in teaching and preaching, that's the outcome. God begins working on the inner me so the outer me greater reflects Christ. But it grows out of the inside being right and being godly and being obedient. Now, he says not only love from a pure heart, but then he says you have a good conscience. You know what the conscience is? The conscience is that inner you, that inner judge, that voice you know, that says, hey, that's good, that's good, that's bad, that's right, that's wrong, you feel guilty, you don't feel guilty, it either condemns you or affirms you, right? But here's the kicker, here's the catch. Your conscience cannot always be trusted. It's not always reliable. Why? Because I'm a sinner. So are you. And sin messes up my conscience. And sometimes it gets it right, and sometimes my conscience gets it wrong. Look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Do you see that again? Fall away from the faith. Paying attention to, dece to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars. And who was the first liar? The Bible says Satan. He's the father of all lies. By means of hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of liars in verse 2 seared their own conscience as with a branding iron. It's like a hot iron brands, burns their conscience and it scabs over and sin can get you to the point that your conscience is no longer sensitive to what God says is sin. Your conscience can be so burned, so hardened over by sin, you're no longer conscious to what God says is wrong. And if you depend on your conscience and your emotions and how you feel, well, you know, I think, I feel, 
Sometimes that's going to lead you contrary to what God says. And the only way a Christian can have a good conscience is obedience to what God says in Scripture. Because God and His Word judge me. I don't judge His Word. That's how I have a good conscience before God. And then he says a sincere faith. It means genuine, the real deal. You're not a phony, you're not a fake. It was used in the early days in drama for an actor who would wear a mask and pretend to be another character. And there are some of us who go through life wearing masks, pretending to be this while we're really that. And what God says, if you're going to approach Scripture the right way, what it does is it gradually chips away at the mask you wear and, 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 and gets to, to the point of revealing the true you. And as you're growing, the true you is becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ in godliness and in love. So the question is, is that happening in your life? Are you having encounters with God as the Holy Spirit empowers His Word in your life to deal with the inner you so that the outer you reflects Christ so that the inner and outer you are growing in God's kind of love and God's kind of godliness. Not what the world says is love and not what the world says is godly, but what God says is love and what God says is godly. Are you growing in that? Are you being transformed? And and again, doesn't matter your age or how long you've been a Christian. You, You are to continually be moving forward in these areas, so that you're building the household of God in this community, in this world, and in yourself. That's what the right approach to God does. The right approach to Scripture does. Now, the wrong approach to Bible study, the wrong approach to Bible reading, the wrong approach to teaching does not produce that kind of transformation. See, we we could welcome everybody into the church and say everybody's okay and everybody's right with God. But if you're not transformed, you're not right with God. You, You can be in church seven days a week, 70 years of your life. But if you're not being changed and transformed in godliness and love, you're not right with God. Now, when Jesus comes back and raises us from the dead, we receive that glorified body, which will be perfect. That work will be complete. It's not complete in me right now. It's not complete in you right now. But brothers and sisters, today, July 2015, I should not be the same person I was a year ago, and neither should you. If I'm thriving in my relationship with Christ, I'm growing, I'm changing. And the longer I'm saved, the more it's in those small ways that matter to God as much as what we normally think of as the big ways. And so I open myself up to encounter him through his word so that can happen. Let me give you one practical understanding of what bad teaching is, what bad Bible reading is. Next week we're going to look at a couple of of bad ways, wrong ways to approach scripture. But let me just give you one in response to all this today. Here's a wrong approach to Bible reading, to Bible teaching. Reading the Scripture, teaching the Scripture to focus more on head knowledge than life change. Focusing more on head knowledge than life 
change. That's a wrong approach. We all know people, they, they can quote the Bible out the wazoo. Right? But they're mean as snakes. Head knowledge, not life change. I see some of you shaking your head. You know people like that, don't you? But life change has to be based on the truth of Scripture, the truth of what God says is godly. Responding to the gospel of repenting from sin and turning to Christ. But it's a wrong approach if you, you just focus. I, I want to fill your mind with all this Bible stuff, but never what it means in your daily life. No application, no change. No, what do you do with it? That's bad teaching, bad preaching, and that's bad Bible reading in your own quiet time if that's all you do. We need to know Bible. We need to know theology. We need to be taught. We need to learn. But it's equally important that we be growing, changing. We be on that journey. And that's the reason I've been talking so much for the past few years about learning how to pray the Scripture, scriptural meditation, so that you're having a conversation with God, responding to what He says. And so you take that that verse five where he talks about a, a pure heart, a pure mind. And I want, I want to give you a challenge this week. I want to challenge you to read the first chapter of 1 Timothy at least once every day this week. And I want to challenge you after you read it to find one verse or one phrase in a verse or one word in a verse and focus on that for a few moments. And say it out loud over and over and over, out loud, over and over and over. And so take that pure mind, pure heart, and say it out loud, and think about it, and talk to God, pray to God out loud about it, and, and, and it might be something like, God, I know I need to be a pure heart, but i got to be honest, I don't always have one, and God, yesterday I got really mad, or I had all these bad thoughts, or I lusted, or I, whatever it is, and have a conversation with God, and say, God, you know, the truth is on the inside, sometimes I, I'm this, but I, I pretend out here. Just talk to God about it and, 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 and ask God to show you where are those areas in your life where you're not pure and to give you the strength to confess and repent and become pure in those areas. And if you will have that kind of encounter, that kind of daily dialogue with God about what He says, not only are you learning the truth of Scripture, but you are being transformed as God uses that Word to work in your life. And that's the right approach to Scripture. It's change, growth, transformation, Christ-likeness, not just head knowledge. So I want to challenge you to do that this week. Bill was uh, 10 years old. 10 years old when he lost his sight, became blind. Because that he dropped out of school, never finished high school, Yet when he was an adult, he got a job working in a cafeteria at a college campus in Missouri. He worked there for 35 years. 2004, so what, 11 years ago? When Bill, listen to this, this is true. When Bill was 72 years old, when he was 72 years old, he graduated from college with a degree and a 4.0 GPA, blind. Because while he was working at college, 
in that cafeteria. He learned about a computer program that allowed people to scan the pages of a book. And then that software would read it back to him out loud. And in essence, it made all the libraries of the world available to him. And he started working on his degree in college. And he graduated at the age of 72. What's your excuse for not learning? What's what's your reason for not getting into God's Word and having regular encounters with God that make you a better follower of Jesus Christ? What's your justification for not allowing God to take His Word and make you more loving, more godly, more Christ-like? You want to thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Listen, it's not going to happen just because you show up here. Showing up here matters, but that alone is not going to do it. You're not going to thrive when, you know, all of a sudden I just preached the greatest sermon you've ever heard. It might bless you for a moment, but that's not going to be the source of your ongoing spiritual thriving, if you will. If you thrive spiritually, it's going to be because you take responsibility for your relationship with Jesus and you maintain that strong, intimate connection with Him and you get into His Word and you allow His Word to grow you. Not just worry about what everybody else is doing that's wrong, but where does God want to grow you? And sometimes it's not God telling you that you're wrong. Sometimes he does that. That's part of it. But sometimes it's God giving you a word of encouragement, God giving you a word of direction, God giving you a word of focus when you need it. But if you don't take the initiative to encounter him through his word so that you can hear from him and be changed by him, that's not going to happen in your life. So are you thriving? Or are you the kind of Christian that when, when you tell your stories about Jesus, your encounters with Jesus, what Jesus did in your life, all your stories about what Jesus did are in the past. You don't have any stories from today. Your stories are all in the past. Nothing going on right now. Nothing going on in recent times. It's all in the past then that tells you, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. And something needs to change. 